Hey y'all, Sam Marisek here, and I'm your host of the podcast, The Dietitianist. Combine the words dietitian and nutritionist. You get the gist. Before we dive into our discussion, my go-to disclaimer, this podcast is meant for informational and educational purposes only. It does not constitute a client-provider relationship, nor should it be used for individualized medical nutrition therapy advice. Should you have specific nutrition-related questions, I encourage you to contact me directly. And I am so excited. I have a friend, doctor, former teammate, Sam Allen, Dr. Sam Allen. Um, feel free to go ahead and introduce yourself. Share all the things. Okay. Hi, I am Samantha, or also Sam Allen, and I am so excited to be here. Um, I know Sam Marisek from Baylor, and we recently reconnected, and I am so glad that we did. I practice internal medicine, general internal medicine, in the right in the middle of Texas. And I spend most of my days in a clinic treating patients for all sorts of issues head to toe, and I'll do a lot of preventive care. And I also dabble in hospital medicine as well. And it's it's great. I'm living the dream. Awesome. Um, also fellow military spouse, right? Correct. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, before we started recording, we were chatting all things uh, military related too. So we were also getting very deep into the impact of the term obesity and how it's currently being addressed from a advanced practitioner standpoint. So Sam, feel free to kind of share with our listeners what you feel like the current picture looks like and maybe um, potential obstacles or thoughts, feedback, overall suggestions. Um, so this is obviously a very hefty topic, uh, but one that I'm very passionate about because I've realized that so many patients are treated differently because they have that label obese on their chart. And a lot of them will see that on there because most patients now can have access to their charts. They can see what we write. They can see everything, every diagnosis that we've been given. And they see that. And a lot of times they're really not only shocked by it, but kind of offended. And to the point where it is, it almost makes them not want to go to the doctor. Um, and I have numerous patients who will come in for other reasons. And then they will either bring up their weight or I don't usually bring it up on the first visit because if they are in that category, because I don't think that is a, I don't think that's appropriate the first time I meet them um, because that's a very sensitive topic for most people. Um, but when we do eventually come to that discussion, a lot of patients say that they've left other doctors because that's the only thing that other doctor would focus on, or they would go in for one issue that was completely unrelated to their weight. And then it always came back to, well, you need to lose weight. You need to lose weight. Um, and so much of it is based on a number, which is the BMI, which is just a calculation based on your weight and your height. And it, there are some correlations between obesity and multiple health conditions like diabetes, hypertension, heart disease. But I have a lot of patients that are technically in the normal weight range who have diabetes, hypertension, and heart disease. I also have a lot of patients in the obese range who don't have those things. So what we are saying is we're going to take this one number and decide if you're healthy or not, and then decide how we're going to treat you based on that. And I just, that just doesn't sit well with me. And that influences a lot of the way that I practice. Um, here in Texas, I do care for a lot of people who meet that criteria for obesity. I also just happen to care for a lot of females and a lot of women who are in that category who really struggle with it. And so it's something I'm figuring out daily how I'm going to deal with this and how I'm going to address it in these patients' best interest. 
Yeah, absolutely. And talk to our listeners a little bit about how you mentioned the role insurance companies play for potentially suggesting that this be addressed on an every visit basis, even if it's not a reason a patient came to see you and maybe how that impacts costs. Yeah. So specifically Medicare, um, but some other insurance companies as well will assign a specific diagnosis code like obesity to a patient. And then the physician or the advanced practice provider who sees the patient is required to address that issue on an at least once a year basis in order to get appropriately reimbursed from the insurance company for that patient. Mm -hmm. Um, And so what what they're saying uh, in their eyes is that patient is more costly because of their obesity which translates in my mind to, well, then you must think they're less healthy, which maybe they are, but is that directly related to their weight? Probably not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think a lot of times what gets missed in a lot of fee-for-service-based medical models is social determinants of health. Yep. I can speak for experience when I was maybe in that world how many of those questions maybe weren't answered or weren't answered in the certain time period they were supposed to be, you know, understanding a patient's socioeconomic status, um, stress, potential substance use, so on and, and, and so forth. And to your very mm-hmm. point, we rely so heavily on body mass index. And I think a lot of times we, we fail to see that patient or client as an entire person, you know, and there's right. so many other facets of health. And like you mentioned, you you have patients who fall into the category of healthy BMI, but they still suffer from these comorbidities. And even just the the basis of nutrigenomics or nutrigenomics and how genetic makeup has such a role. And it's obviously a costly area of research, but um, yeah, I think it's just, so interesting. And how do we sensitively talk about this with patients or clients and focus, at least from my perspective, I'm not denying that in some instances, of course, a larger body person may have more potential adverse outcomes based on a disease state, but are we focusing on food rules or relationship with food? Because you're still going to have individuals who are following a mostly quote unquote healthy or balanced diet intake and still be outside of their BMI, but all of their other biomarkers of health have like a gold star. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So if, if a patient brings up the topic of weight, whether that be on the first visit or a subsequent visit, or if they make a visit just to talk about that, I will usually ask them what their goal is for weight loss. And the most of the time they say, I want to be healthier. And then I'll bring up their chart and I'll say, your cholesterol is beautiful. Your blood sugar is fantastic. You're not, you're not diabetic. You don't have high blood pressure. Um, so from my perspective, as your doctor, I can tell you that you're healthy. So are there things that you're perceiving as unhealthy that, that you want to fix? And then sometimes they'll say, well, my knees hurt, or I have sleep apnea and I really don't like that. And I'll say that is there is a direct correlation between weight and those things. Um, as a runner, I've experienced that. I had a very healthy and necessary period of rapid weight gain when I was in residency. Um, I gained about 20 pounds over the under the under the guy under the influence of a dietitian because I needed to. And it hurt to run. 
my knees hurt. And I just thought, and, and my body got used to it. My muscles changed. I was able to, to accommodate that because it was healthy weight gain. But I can, I can understand why they're saying my knees hurt or other things that make that are actual things that can potentially be improved with weight loss. But a lot of what it comes down to is that they have been told that they're unhealthy because they're obese or because they're overweight. And it, it takes a lot of time for me to learn for, for them to learn to trust me when I tell them that I don't think they're unhealthy. And so with the way that I explain it to them, as I say, I want you to be in a, a place where you eat food that sounds good to you. You eat a healthy diet. It's mostly whole foods, mostly things that are the way God made them. But if you want to treat every once in a while, that's great. But I want you to eat when you're hungry, stop when you're full, be able to move your body the way you want to and feel good doing that. And if you happen to lose weight when you follow those practices, so be it. But that is not the goal. Mm -hmm. And, but that's the healthy weight for you is when you can do those things. Yes. And for, and I had a patient actually start crying when I told her that because she had been trying so long to lose weight. And when I, I told her that she didn't have to, and that I, as her doctor was not going to tell her every time she comes in that she needs to lose weight. It was just, it was revolutionary for her. Um, and I don't say that to make it sound like, oh, I'm the first person that did this. I'm such a good doctor. It's more like we as doctors have been trained to tell patients to lose weight mm. just based on this one number and not see the whole picture. Oh, and I would absolutely agree. 10 years ago, a lot of dietetic study was based on empirical data and saying, Hey, it, it is more numbers focused. And if their yeah. cholesterol is this, if their blood pressure is this, if their fasting blood glucose is this, um, and to your point, you were alluding to, I don't know if you meant to intentionally or not, but some of those principles of intuitive eating. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and I, so I have, I have instructed when I, if I have a patient that I feel is ready to go to take that step, I will recommend intuitive eating and I will recommend the workbook and I will, and, and I will ensure, I will say, this is not a diet. Yeah. Um, because it has now been twisted. Stuff. It's now been twisted into a diet. Um, but I say you might lose weight doing intuitive eating, mm -hmm. but you probably won't. And that's okay. Right. And I think so much of it stems from diet culture, even at yes. a young age, as a mom of young kids, I've realized the things my four-year-old picks up on and trying to even change the dialogue from the messaging that they're getting, whether we notice it or not. Um, mm -hmm. it, and it, it's just, wow. Uh, trying to unlearn these things is so beneficial. Um, and I think it goes back to just transforming and, and renewing our, our thoughts within our mind. And um, yeah, I think I may have interrupted you mid thought there though. Uh, I don't think you did. Um, but one thing that I I, when I start to doubt myself, when I prank, when I practice this way, because this, like I said, this is not normal. This is an unusual way to practice. And every once in a while, I think maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I, maybe I am harming my patients by, by, you know, not pushing the weight loss thing. Then I remember that I am taught to practice evidence-based medicine, which is I do things based on studies that show that it works. And we have really good evidence that diets don't work. We know that 95 plus percent of people who go on a diet, who, who follow a calorie restricted diet, gain the weight back. So why would I tell somebody 
to do something that's only going to work three or 4% of the time. That makes absolutely no sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and so at the end of the day, I have to fall back on that and realize me telling them to go on a calorie restricted diet or worse, me giving them a medicine that's going to alter the way that their metabolism works and make them not able to listen to their body's hunger fullness cues. I'm doing more harm than good. And that's the last thing I want to do. Not to mention the fact that there are probably numerous cases when a doctor has instructed a patient to go on a calorie-restricted diet and it's led to disordered eating or an eating disorder. Mm. And that is, that's the opposite of what I want to do. I want to help restore people's relationship with food um, while I work on my own relationship with food. Yes, it's so true. And I think even zooming out more so, not just food in general, but balanced relationships across the board, right? And improving overall health, you know, Um, some people, it may be food, some people, it may be other things. And I wanted to uh, talk a little bit about medications because I'm not on TikTok. I feel like I'm getting old because I can't keep up, don't have Snapchat, (laughs) but about Ozempic and Wagovi. Yeah. Is that the other one as well? Yeah. So Wagovi and Ozempic are both semaglutide or semaglutide, depending on how you want to say it. Um, And they are essentially medicines that they were designed as, as diabetes medicines and they are fantastic diabetes medicines. They work really well. They can lower people's A1C by one to one and a half percent in a lot of folks. And one of the ways that it does that is it leads to weight loss, which improves insulin resistance. And the way by which it reduces or leads to weight loss is in many cases by making you not hungry. It's essentially the way I describe it to patients, I don't tell them the whole pathophysiology of it, but it's almost imitating gastroparesis because it's slowing mm-hmm. gastric emptying mm-hmm. so that they feel fuller longer. And so of course they're not hungry and a lot of them get nauseated. And so it's, it's mimicking a, a condition that we try to avoid in diabetics. Exactly. Exactly. Which ironically enough is something that we see sometimes in individuals who are suffering from eating disorders, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah delayed gastric emptying and mm-hmm. during recovery process, um, helping to restore yeah. this hunger and, and fullness cues. Um, so, yep. yeah. So, so it, it does, it, it improves insulin resistance and it does help with diabetes, but, it, and in, when given to a non-diabetic, it usually leads to weight loss, but every study that's been done on these medicines shows that as soon as you stop it, the weight comes back. So I tell patients who ask me about it, I say, this is going to change the way that your body responds to food. This is going to change the way that your brain understands hunger and fullness. And if you start this, you you can't go off of it. Um, or you'll gain the weight back, which is at the end of the world. No, um, but for a lot of people, they feel like it is. Mm-hmm. I was listening to a medical podcast the other day, and they were actually saying exactly what I'm saying. But they were saying, oh, so we treat it like a chronic disease, like heart disease, which means you have to stay on your medications forever. So they were saying it, of course, that makes sense. Yeah, of course you have to stay on it forever. And I'm just thinking, but you can't boil obesity down to a disease like you do heart disease. Mm -hmm. Um, So the whole kind of way that we as medical practitioners talk about obesity as in a disease by itself, not as part of metabolic syndrome or not as part of um, all of the other things that go along with it, but just treating obesity as a disease. And we champion weight loss as if we're doing this wonderful thing for people. I just think what, but at what cost mm-hmm. do we really want to change people's relationship with food forever to make them thinner? 
I'm curious, what do long-term studies show? Are there many long-term studies because these drugs no. are newer? No, they're, they're very new. So no, there aren't any long-term studies, but in, in like nine to 12 month follow-up, most people gain the weight back. Mm -hmm. Interestingly enough, I feel like one of the most drastic measures individuals can take to quote unquote combat obesity is pursuing bariatric or some yeah. form of weight loss surgery. And yeah. I did spend some time looking back. I'm like, wow, I feel like I was harming individuals. Um, but that, you, you know, I say we can only learn from, from past, right. but, right. um, you know, that's, that's like literally altering an individual's anatomy to promote malabsorption and then just right. the risks involved. I'm like, yeah. wow, like, and depending on the specific type of weight loss surgery may or may not be able to be revised. So right. it, it, it's a permanent change and, um, yeah. similar to what you so said. Changing people's relationship with food. It is. I have a friend my age who had a gastric sleeve, and she was, I'm not going to give numbers here, but she was heavy to the point where it was interfering with her day to day life, pain, pain all the time, just miserable, and couldn't do things she wanted to do because she was out of breath and she was in pain and her joints hurt. And she chose to have surgery and has since lost over 100 pounds and is now eating a pretty wholesome diet, although very limited portion sizes. Um, and it, she works out all the time and she loves going to them the gym and she feels fantastic. And I'm so happy for her because she really, I really do think that she has a better quality of life now, mm -hmm. but I would say that is not, not the most common out, outcome. Um, so many of my patients have nutritional deficiencies that affect their daily life and they can't enjoy family gatherings because they can't eat what they want to eat. And it's never something that I would recommend as a first line treatment option. And I would, I really would only, I would never say encourage, I would never encourage a patient to do it. But if a patient is asking me about it, it would really be if they're in a situation where their weight is so significantly affecting their quality of life that they are willing to be on all of, you know, the A to Z supplements and have all of those follow-ups and have all those checkups mm -hmm. um, because they need to lose weight to feel better. But that is a rare situation. Yeah, no, I would 100% agree with the uh, story you just shared in terms of that particular outcome. And um, sometimes too, I think of it as like the Goldilocks phenomenon, right? someone who is like pursuing the weight loss option. It's like, Hey, maybe we go back to the, what's our relationship with food because potentially yep. we can see some progress there and a mm -hmm. pastor slash mentor. I'm, I'm stealing his statement said the thing is not about the thing. Yeah. You know, absolutely. And maybe food is just a way, a, a coping mechanism for individuals. And as part mm -hmm. of intuitive eating, the, the work, the workbook in particular, I, one of the phrases that stuck with me was emotional eating is not a negative. I think when right. it becomes that yep. primary coping mechanism, mm -hmm. then we run into issues, but that could be said of anything. Right. And I, I tell patients that I say, and not just patients, but friends and family, I say, there's, there's more than one reason that we eat. Mm -hmm. so we often eat because we're hungry, but sometimes we eat because we're at a party and that cake looks really good. 
or we're at Thanksgiving and we want to eat that food that we eat every year. Mm -hmm. And even if we're a little bit full, um, I used to be absolutely petrified of the feeling of fullness and thought of it as a negative thing. But now I just realized it's a, it's a feedback mechanism. It is my body telling me I've had enough, but it's not bad. Um, and it, it, you know, it's not something I want to experience on a daily basis being un uncomfortably full, but patients who say, you know, I can't stop eating when I'm angry, upset, sad, or whatever. I think, okay, we should address what's making you angry, upset, or sad and come up with other coping mechanisms. But if you happen to eat something that tastes good to bring yourself a little bit of happiness and for a brief period of time, that does not make you a weak person or a bad person, or it doesn't mean you have a disease. Yeah. This idea of associating for food with morality or dichotomous yep. thinking gets yep. us in so much trouble. It sure does. Yeah. 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 Um, and I know you alluded to something else I want to touch on, but my, myself included, yes, just this unhealthy at one point relationship with food, this idea of, you know, do as I do now, not as I did. Right. <laughs> and I don't, I don't know if you have a similar sentiment, but oh my gosh, the prevalence of disordered eating or full blown eating disorders among distance yes. runners. Yes. And, um, it almost makes me have to separate my separate myself self from it um, because I love reading about runners and reading about races and, you know, following them on social media or what have you. Um, but I, I often have had to kind of take a step back and be like, why am I reading this? Cause I'll read stories or read people's, you know, accounts of what happened to them in college when their coach told them they needed to lose weight or whatever this toxic environment they were, they were in. And part of it is because I'm, I was there and I kind of relate to it, but I think a lot of it is me almost weirdly relishing that way of life and almost missing it oddly, um, even though it was not not good for me um, or the people around me. But I, yeah, I have to find myself, I have to take, often take a step back because I realize it's not good for me to be so absorbed into that. Yeah, yeah. and. I know you shared when we first started that we met at Baylor and I don't know how much you've kept up with it. I have to applaud Baylor in general and NCAA institutions across the board, because I think it is becoming more of a proactive instead of reactive approach to yeah. identifying athletes who are at risk mm -hmm. for developing eating disorders and having appropriate personnel on staff and uh, I know Baylor specifically, they have a, I think it's available to the general student population. Um, athletic, no, I'm going to butcher the name, but a resource center on campus that is not only mm -hmm. for um, potential eating disorders, but also they host AA meetings and sobriety programs. I don't know. Are you familiar? That's, that is, I am not entirely familiar with it, but now I'm going to have to look into it. But um that's that's fantastic to know about that. I and also just the fact that college programs in and male coaches even are willing to ask athletes about their periods and recognize <laughs> that as a as a vital sign, which is huge. Um, yeah. Yes, yeah. Or even interpreting a data. Like I know when you were there, we were getting DEXA scans. We had to do the DEXA scans. Yeah. And I don't even remember if I got my results exact. Like. I'm sure they gave them to me, but just the interpretation or way they are interpreted or even delivered to an athlete or 
weighing athletes that can be triggering for some individuals. Um, so much, so much, but they are, I think across the board moving in the right direction. So I think that that is a positive. And I just think women's running as a whole has moved in the right direction. Um, just as far as supporting women who go on maternity leave and letting them come back to the sport and realizing that women can come back stronger than ever. And it's really, really exciting, I think, to see that happening. Um, But the other thing that I have kind of mentally struggled with is that women in sport have this very fine line, especially in running, this very fine line that we have to stay on to be our best, which is don't get too thin to the point where you're breaking things and you're getting stress fractures and you don't have energy, but don't get too heavy because then you're not fast anymore. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot different than in men who that line, that line is still there, but it's easier. It's a, it's a fatter line. And it's easier to stay, stay within. Whereas with women, it's just such a fine line. And, and you don't meet a lot of women in running who have been doing it lifelong and haven't had at least one period of time where they were, too thin because they got stuck on the thinner is faster. I must get thinner to the point where it damaged them. And now that we're talking about that and people like Amelia Boone are bringing it up and talking about the fact that they went to treatment and that they came back stronger than ever. I think it's it's great. And it's really, I think makes me hopeful for the next generation of runners. Absolutely. And I think in general, people sharing their struggles and say, Hey, while you're in the middle of it, absolutely. It sucks. But then being able to share how you overcame that and what worked for you and then being able to help pull others out as well, I think is so paramount. And just being able to get to that place of healing where you say, Mm -hmm. I don't have it all together. Humans in general don't have it all together. Um, which are you familiar with Dr. Kristen Neff and her work regarding self-compassion? I don't think so. No, she's, she was at UT Austin. Um, she's got, she's got a couple books and, um, anywho, yes. So just saying like, Hey, there's a better way and being able to forge that path and potentially share some not so great moments in our own lives to Mm -hmm. help others, I think is where it's at. Yeah. And I, I think for me, the way I found healthy, a healthy space in running was separating myself from the competitive part of it and really just enjoying how fun it is. And right now, like for the past few years for me, it's been trail running. And so I will do, I'll do trail races every once in a while, but you know, and I've won a few medals, but I don't go out there to compete. I go out there to really enjoy myself and just enjoy what my body can do because it's really cool. Um, and that has helped me heal just getting to the point where I'm not as fast as I used to be because first of all, I don't have time to train like I used to, and I can't do that mileage without getting hurt. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. I'm still a runner. And now that I am in a healthy spot with running, I can do it forever. Whereas before, you know, probably would have hit a brick wall at some point and not been able to continue. Yeah. 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 Um, I agree with the fun part for sure. Fun over fast. Yes. (laughs) Uh, Sam, I wanted to ask you any specific resources, books, podcasts that you would recommend for individuals who are seeking a 
more balanced relationship, anti-diet approach to food? Uh, well, we mentioned intuitive eating by Evelyn Triboli and I don't remember the other author, but Elise that one's fantastic. Rush. Yeah. Yes. Yes. You're right. So both the book and the workbook, I've recommended that to patients. Um, podcast wise, um, there is one called Outweigh. It's Amy Brown. She's on the, um, she's out of Nashville and is like a very relatively famous radio host who also happened to have an eating disorder for several years. And so she started a show with a girl named Lisa Haim, who's a dietitian. And they talk about how they're, the, it's called outweigh because they say that, you know, living your life and enjoying things can, can outweigh the um, benefits that you get from living a disordered life. So that podcast is fantastic. Um, if you're okay with a little bit of cursing, um, at the, um, the podcast maintenance phase. Yes, with Aubrey Gordon and Aubrey Gordon and Michael Hobbs. Although they it's cover hilarious. all, they cover they all do. topics. It's not just so some of the topics. Some <laughs> of the topics I've been like, eh, and sometimes they make me blush a little. But they're <laughs> they've done some. So the Aubrey's one on the BMI is amazing, um, specifically on the BMI, and they they've done some. The it's all about wellness culture in general. But mm -hmm. there's there's been a few that have just have really hit home for me. Um, one of the things that Aubrey talks about, which really is something I was aware of, but hadn't really thought about much was when we say that people who are obese or overweight or fat or however, whatever terminology you want to use, when we say they're unhealthy and they die younger and they get more heart disease and they get more diabetes, what if that's not because of their weight, but it's because of the way that we as a society treat them and it's the stress that they're under and it's the increased level of stress that they experience on a day-to-day -day basis. And I just was kind of blown away by that because it's like you were talking about social determinants of health. There are so many things that we can't see, but have to do with the way that we treat people or how they experience life that we can't really measure that changes their health. And so that was one of the huge things that I got from listening to that podcast was just realizing that yes, we can, we could reliably say that people who are overweight or obese maybe have worse health come, outcomes or don't live as long or whatever, but maybe it's not just because of their weight. Maybe it's because of other things. So that was, that was huge for me. Um, well, other books, I'm actually reading right now a book called Real Food for Pregnancy. I don't know if you've, um, if you've heard of that one. Um, it's not necessarily intuitive eating based, but it's um, pregnancy related because by the way, I'm pregnant. Woohoo. Um, and you're waiting to find out, right? Yes, we're waiting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it is, it's by Lil, what is her last name? Um, while you're looking that it's up. It's a very, it is, she's, I, the, the reason I like it is that she gives you all the information, but then she also says, do your best. Like if you can't eat all these foods, that's okay. And she talks a lot about intuitive eating and listening to your body and mindful eating. Lily Nichols is her name. Um, so that one's really good for people who are interested in um, prenatal nutrition, which I am personally quite interested in that right now. Yeah. Um, and then I am currently reading um, Neely Spence Gracie's book about, um, what is that Sam, one? Sam, were you on the team when she came to visit? No. On, a, on an official visit? Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's too funny. I no. remember one time. Uh, 
breakthrough women's running. She has a, a, a few chapters on, on kind of food and, and running. And that was, that's been really good too. She's still running competitively. She is recently back into it. Yeah. She had, she took a break after, I think she came back quicker than, ex- or she got pregnant quicker than expected after her first. And so I think had to take another break, but I think she's planning to come back. Okay. So I remember Katie Shaw and I were doing a cool down after a race, an indoor race up in New York city at the armory. Uh-huh. And she, of course, like smoked us. Cause she, be, she went right. We're just like, right. And she was like, you girls did a great job out there. Way to hang on. And I was like, wow. Thanks. <laughs> That's next level. I love that. I was like, do you know, she just keeps it honest. <laughs> yeah. 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 But no, I mean, otherwise like she is, she is nice and you know, props kudos to her. Cause she can definitely blow me out of the water running this. Um, I interrupted your list. Did, did you have more on there? Um, I would have to think about it. A lot of the podcasts I listen to are like medical specific and they're very uh, fat phobic. So I would not recommend those. Um, <laughs> I usually skip those episodes. Um, oh, I read, I actually listened very recently to, um, let's see. It was, and the podcast is called On the Media. Mm-hmm. Um, but the episode was called the F word and it was talking about the, the F word being fat and they interviewed a physician from Canada who actually just blew my mind with his approach to obesity, um, in, in a good way. Um, his name is Dr. Yanni Friedhoff okay. and he is a professor of family medicine in Ottawa. But his approach to obesity and managing it is goals for me, the way that he talks about it and the way that he approaches it. So that particular episode called I'm the curious, F word. I'm curious, how how much or what do the opportunities look like for physicians who are interested in learning more of a weight neutral, weight inclusive approach in, in regards to like even a one hour CEU? So I, so I have come across, I mean, I I get a lot of medical journals in the mail and in my email, I've come across maybe one or two articles that's been, Hey, maybe we're approaching this the wrong way. Um, I think it, I think it has to be pretty much self-guided. Um, I had the wonderful pleasure of when I lived in Denver, I actually lived just down the street from uh, Jennifer Gaudiani's office and she is a internal medicine trained doc who now practices in a um, completely haze-focused practice. And- Which for our listeners I think stands for? Health at every size, of course. Yes, yes, yes. Um, so she actually, anything, if, I mean, if you just look her up, Jennifer L. Gaudiani, she's a physician in, in Denver, um, but she has her own, she has her own private practice called the Gaudiani Clinic. Mm-hmm. where she practices, practices a haze, has a haze, haze focused practice. And I emailed her and just said, Hey, I am a physician about to go into my own practice. And I just need to figure out how to, how to do this. Cause I feel like I'm alone and how to practice. I want to practice the way that you practice. So I just met with her and talked with her for probably an hour or two, just about her practice and what it can, how I can apply that to my patients. And that was fantastic. Obviously, not everybody would have that opportunity, but she has a book actually. Um, 
which is not specifically about intuitive eating, but um, it's called Sick Enough. Mm -hmm. And it basically talks about how even if you are not emaciated, you can still be suffering health consequences of eating disorders and disordered eating, which to me is another reason to practice the way that I practice. Because if I'm trying to get people to lose weight, I'm potentially harming them, which is obviously the last thing I want to do. Right. 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 Um, some other podcasts I would add on there are, or have you heard of what the actual fork? Uh, I don't think so. With Sammy provide and Jenna Werner. Again, if, if you don't mind, um, some explicit words in there from time to time. And then a super well-known one, at least in the world of dietetics is food psych with, Oh yeah. That's a great one. Yeah. yeah. Christy Harrison. And she has several books and I think one is coming out this year as well. So, um, Lots of great resources. Um, and I haven't listened to it in a while because she kind of changed her focus a little bit to more kind of wellness type stuff, but the Dear Body Bod podcast, um, her name's Jessie Jean, but she's a former bodybuilder who left bodybuilding and became an intuitive eater and talks about that on her podcast. But like I said, I don't know what the more recent episodes are like, but the beginning of the podcast, the first probably 30 or 40 episodes are fantastic. Awesome. Awesome. Sam, I know time is money and I'm pretty sure my minions and other half are going to be home soon. Is there anything else in general that you want to share with our listeners, um, thoughts, questions, comments, concerns, or otherwise? Um, I would just encourage people to talk with your doctor about the way that they are viewing your body. If you feel that you're not, if, if you feel that you're being viewed as differently because of your weight, um, advocate for yourself. You don't have to get weight at the doctor. There's no requirement to get weight at the doctor. If you don't feel comfortable, just don't do it. And then that may actually open up an opportunity for you to talk to your doctor about, you know, I'm actually trying not to focus on my weight. I'm trying to focus on my relationship with food or I have an eating disorder and I really don't want to know what my weight is because I'm trying not to pay attention to that. And it can be really eye-opening for a lot of doctors because I think we are not in that mindset very often because we're more just about, you know, what are your vital signs? What do things look like? And when really weight can be a really, really big deal for a lot of people. So if you feel comfortable doing so, be willing to talk to your doctor about it. And the other thing is if your doctor is treating you differently because of your weight, or you feel that they're not focusing on what you need, what you need them to focus on because of your weight, find a different doctor. There's someone out there who can help you. <laughs> it might be hard to find, but they, they, we are out there. That is such good insight and words of wisdom. Sam, I appreciate your time. And I know that our listeners do as well. So thank you. Absolutely. This was great. I'm so excited about your podcast. Thank you all so much for tuning in. Resources included in show notes. And until next time, y'all. Cheers.